You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. Welcome to the Let's Talk Strata podcast. Today we're joined with Linda Kipriadakis. Linda has a background in construction, building design and trade contractor work. She has a bachelor degree in architecture and unrestricted builder's license in Queensland, trade qualifications as a sheet metal worker and is a key writer of the ABMA Building Management Code. That's been published in all states, plus New Zealand. As a founding director of the diverse group of companies, as well as the ABMA, Linda's primary focus is on supporting building owners to deliver compliant building maintenance outcomes on common property for the full life of the building. And um, through those endeavours, she optimises the return on investment while maintaining the health, safety and amenity of occupants. Linda holds a view that Australian legislation is the best in the world and that the strata sector provides an underutilised resource as the eyes and ears of the regulator. Through empowering the owners' corporations with knowledge and standards, Linda has a staunch belief that building defects and maintenance of non-compliances can be more effectively managed through her entities and through just the careful due diligence of body corporates. Now, it's a great pleasure to have you on board today, Linda. Um, how did you get into uh, strata work? Uh, you've got a fairly diverse background. You operate a lot of companies that dovetail with one another. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with strata? Well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No worries. So, yes, diverse. Diverse by name and diverse by nature. Yeah. I didn't intend to set out to be diverse. However, that's how it came about. Mm-hmm. I started off as a trade um, practitioner, a sheet metal worker, which is unusual, but it it didn't seem unusual at the time. Mm. And I just built capability from there and went off to uni and did a bachelor degree, worked in the construction industry and became very interested in legislation that imposes um, duties and obligations on us as practitioners. When I um, came into the strata sector back in 2006, I was quite astounded um, that there was very little um, governance over um, professionals um, delivering services in the strata sector. I was I was stunned actually. Mm. Um, coming from a background as an open license builder and a designer, where I have to be registered and mm. be have an occupational license with the regulator. I would be building a $100 million skyscraper and then handing the keys over to unlicensed strata managers, unaccredited or unqualified building managers, and a a committee of um, well-meaning volunteers who might be hairdressers and school teachers. Extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it it was fascinating Mm. to me. So... um, it's always been in my nature to organise complex information and support others to understand um, their roles. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just found it a, a very fascinating niche and I've 
just been continually excited to be mm. in this sector. Now, it's culminated, your experience has culminated in uh, devising the ABMA Building Management Code, and there's a code for every state in Australia mm-hmm. and, and also New Zealand. I've got a copy of that in front of me here, and it's quite detailed. It covers quite a diverse range of responsibilities, obligations, and requirements, and it really classifies the roles of all the parties. Mm. And it goes through things like new building establishment, handover induction, roles and responsibilities for those parties, skills and competencies, and talks about uh, the actual particular service areas and uh, requirements like fire protection systems and other soft services like gardening and recreational areas. So it's quite detailed and um, really is a critical guide for people working, say, as caretaker managers Mm. and contractors in the industry. So, I mean, certainly to be congratulated for for pulling that together. It's amazing. Now, that would have been a challenging thing to put together when there was nothing there, and I certainly know about the challenges involved in doing that. How did you manage those challenges? Well, it may seem a challenge, but for me at the time, it was a natural progression. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned I came into the community title sector in 2006, having been a building industry professional for some um, 25-odd years in the construction industry. And I mentioned that I was astounded by the lack of governance around management of common property for the full life of the building. So um, as my facilities management um, business grew and I needed to recruit um, employees, I started drafting a manual for them. So the early beginnings of the ABMA Building Management Code actually started back in 2006 when I started writing, first of all, um, manuals for myself as a um, a newcomer to Strata and practising as a facilities manager, and then later on for my team as they came on board. I actually have an in-house, um, what I call cadetship. Some people laugh at me, and that's an old-fashioned term, but... I have a facilities management cadetship within my organisation, which all of my facilities managers um, go through, and it takes three years. It takes three years for a a person to come in to my business and start as a facilities manager, and then at the end of those three years, I feel that I can um, then let them work independently with a client. So facilities management is not something you can build capability around in five minutes. So um, I had a business partner, Paul Cooper, a very old friend of mine. We we go back to construction and manufacturing days. And Paul and I joined forces in 2015 as a business partnership to incorporate um, Australian Building Management Accreditation, the ABMA, and um, I drafted a manuscript of the first edition in 2015 and we pulled together a independent review panel of um, 27 specialists in the strata sector uh, for to review the first edition. And that, that um, independent review panel is still going. We've now got over 30 people. There are over um, 10 lawyers on the panel Um, university academics and representatives from peak body associations as well as practicing um, facilities managers, 
owners of management rights, committee chairpersons and other stakeholders in um, the maintenance of common property. So every year we all meet twice to um, edit the manuscript for next year's edition. We apply any new legislation that has um, changed or amended throughout the prior year and we debate within all the stakeholder factions that um, are represented on the independent review panel the interpretation of that legislation or standard and how it would best um, suit the sector from a best-for-building perspective. So anyone who reads the ABMA Building Management Code can be assured that every stakeholder group within the sector has been represented in its development and um, and in addition to that, anyone who reads the Building Management Code and has a comment or would like to um, provide some feedback, you are more than welcome to via the public comment form on the website. We, The ABMA sees itself as a fully inclusive platform for joining forces to set standards for self-regulation across the building management sector. Mm. And um, we've certainly talked about it uh, here in the podcast about uh, regulating body corporate managers and you're approaching it from the other end, from the contractors that uh, tie into um, Strata um, from that end. Indeed. Um, And it's all very important to have standards, isn't it, in the industry? Oh, it's fundamental. Mm. Without standards, you're like a rudderless craft on, mm. a, on a wild ocean. Mm. If you don't know what destination you're sailing for, h- how can you get there? Mm. If you don't have the tools to guide and steer yourself towards your destination, how can you ever yeah. get there? So, yes, we, we need governance. We need standards. As humans, we thrive on them. Mm. We look for them. Um, I see my team flourishing in in a systematic world where they know what's expected of them and where to go and how to um, deliver their duties. It's it, it actually makes people feel good about themselves. Yeah. But interestingly, you make the comment about um, looking for qualification and, and accreditation of or licensing perhaps mm-hmm. of strata managers. Uh, I, I agree with that as much as I agree with needing to have a form of qualification for building managers, because we all understand that um, most schemes do not have a professional building manager Mm. providing services, and those volunteer committees often um, revert to their strata manager for advice and guidance around the maintenance of common property. So in a great deal of situations the strata manager acts as the building manager so yes i see anybody who delivers um building management outcomes linked to compliance on common property must have some form of qualification or license it's such an open-ended industry um unregulated industry yet we're subject to a large volume of law Indeed. And the implications of applying those laws incorrectly and not using best practice are extremely risky, it's particularly in the higher, you know, valued buildings or any building for that any matter. Any building. Yeah. Well, you did mention 
that I highly regard Australian legislation. Mm. I can say that with confidence. Um, I, I was very lucky to go to London and um, while I was there, the, la- the most recent time I've been, I went and had a look at the Grenfell Tower mm. and what a horrible tragedy yeah. for that city and those poor people. Yeah. I had investigated the fire legislation in the UK just out of curiosity. Mm. And that's how I know that Australian and New Zealand legislation is the best in the world. We are copied around the world. Mm. Our Building Act, our Building Code of Australia, our fire legislation, our AS 1851 Mm. for fire servicing, we are copied. The poor... um, the poor buggers in London, mm-hmm. because of the antiquity of a lot of their buildings, mm. they're unable to impose the high standards that we have yeah. on buildings because retrofitting fire protection systems in a 500-year-old yeah. building... It's almost impossible. Yes, it's impossible. So we're very lucky here. Mm. So while we've got this great legislation... The great legislation is nothing if we don't have the capability to apply it. Exactly. And that is down to each and every individual to engage Mm. and get on board. Mm. Now, we talk about the different players and stakeholders, um, on-site managers or caretakers. What are some of the challenges in those stakeholders maintaining compliance it's they they're subject to scrutiny from lot owners um often their scope of works is fairly significant um maybe vague and hard to follow and at the end of the day um caretakers have a very difficult job of trying to please everyone i reckon it's the most thankless task in the world Mm. look The number one um, vulnerability, in my view, for a resident unit manager or a caretaker under management rights is the management of the relationship with Mm -hmm. the committee. The interpersonal professional relationship is fundamental to success. Mm -hmm. No matter how qualified you are, if you cannot win the trust of your client, it is only a matter of time before you find yourself on a slippery slope towards... How do they do that? Well, my advice is to earn their trust through your own competency. Become a trusted advisor to your body corporate. If you, As a building manager, you need to know every piece of plant and equipment, every whistle, every button within that um, common property. You need to be all over it. Mm like stink on a monkey. You need to know everything. And when your body corporate asks a question, you need to put your hand on that information or you need to know where to go to find that information. When you become the trusted advisor to your committee, you make yourself indisposable, indispensable. They want you. They want your advice. They want to liaise with you. But the only way that you can become a trusted advisor is through action, is mm. through learning what is my job, what infrastructure do I have here, what statutes and codes of practice and Australian standards impose duties mm. on me. What are those duties? How do I go about discharging those duties? 
And then finally, how do I exercise bragging rights Mm -hmm. to my committee about how I know all this stuff? Mm -hmm. So the best friend of the building manager is is an advisor or a trainer or someone who knows more about your job than you do. That is how I got clever. Mm. The the key mentors in my life were always the smartest person in the room. Whenever I go to an event, that's who I'm chasing down, mm. the smartest person in the room. Mm. So just get on board with clever people. Surround yourself by them. Mm. Um, it was Seinfeld. Do you remember Seinfeld? Oh, of course. And he, <laughs> I remember him saying that his key to success was not being the funniest or most brilliant person in his show, but making sure his co-stars were funnier and more brilliant and interesting than him. And if you think about it, he is the planned character. Yeah. The other characters are more colourful. So yeah. that's what I say to building managers. You be the facilitator of the knowledge. Go and get it and bring it to the table. Mm-hmm. Impress your client. Yeah. I guess we're seeing these days a lot of caretaker managers, resident unit managers actually buying the investment dream Mm -hmm. um, of management rights and not truly understanding the implications of what goes with that. Mm. So it's about getting knowledge and and training and being the expert and advisor to the body corporate. You talked about soft skills, having that rapport and communication. Those are hard to obtain sometimes Mm -hmm. unless you're inclined that way. And then you've got the the education side of things. So it's a tough gig, isn't it? Indeed. The soft skills, I I guess um, I was interviewed for a um, a senior role with a a big developer on the Gold Coast many years ago, and he asked me what my strengths and weaknesses were. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, my number one strength is I know what my weaknesses are. And I would say apply that. If if your weakness is um, interpersonal professional skills, if you don't understand the language very well, if you're not um, 100% sure on the culture, if you are a male person who doesn't communicate very well with ladies or if you're a lady that doesn't um, communicate very well with men, what it, know yourself. And then go and get someone to help you. Mm. Get someone to help you. The soft skills, that's one side of it. The technical, the hard skills is the other side of it. There are so many training courses available now for building managers and strata managers who practice building management for clients. You can go any day of the week and learn specific information about building management, compliance management, um, and also about managing your interpersonal relationships as well. So just get on board with the training and know your weaknesses and find mm. someone to help you bridge the gap. Nobody yeah. is perfect. Mm. And they're critical not just from a, you know on-the-ground work issue with, with caretaker managers, but generally in life, aren't they? They're absolutely generally mm. in life. You... Mm. you Life is about overcoming difficulties. Mm-hmm. That That's all life is. That's why we get so um, grumpy as we mm-hmm. get older because the realisation sets in um, that life is just a series of challenges, one after another, and you, it, you eventually find out what your 
um, your limitations are. You can minimise those challenges, can't you, by implementing best practice risk mitigation steps. What are some of the best practice things that uh, um, perhaps caretakers can, can put in place, um, particularly in complex buildings, but for any building for that matter? Good question. Here's the solution. We've, we talk about problems, but we don't always get around to talking about a solution. Mm. Every single building needs a building management plan. Mm. A building management plan is a, is a system of understanding what assets do we own in our building? Where are those assets at in their life cycle? What um, statutes and standards impose compliance requirements on those assets? Mm. What are they? How do we discharge them? What records of maintenance do we need to um, gather up and preserve? What are the soft service um, requirements of our building? It all comes down to planning. Once you have a plan, then that plan, the building management plan can be applied for the full life of the building. Part of the plan is the schedule of duties and the caretaking agreement. How does that link in to legislation? What what are my, what are the inferred duties in yeah. my caretaking agreement? How, how do I know what they are? The minute that you um, purchase your management rights or you um, start a gig as a strata manager delivering building management outcomes for a, a body mm-hmm. corporate, these are the questions: What assets have I got? Where are they at in their life cycle? What preventative maintenance is mandatory? What maintenance is advisory? What compliance records do I need? And where do I go to get them? And the building management code can help you with all that. But basically, that's what you need to know to get started. And the whole thing can be a bit difficult, particularly if you've stepped in as a body corporate manager after many years of the scheme running, or a caretaker who's just bought those management rights, and the documentation is very slim. Indeed. What do you do? You apply the same thinking and just start from where you are. So you you know need to put your detective's hat on and mm-hmm. be a bit of an investigator. But it comes down to tenacity. Honestly, if you don't have the time or capability, there are um, professional services providers out there that will help you, mm. that will set up your building management plan, mm. that will harvest your um, compliance certification and records and give you a checklist. Here's your list. This is what your building has in it. This is what you have to do on a periodical basis and this is the evidence of getting it right. And then there's induction and training for stakeholders so everyone can learn but yeah. the thing not to do is to sit on your hands mm. and look the other way and blame the previous, you know, committee, building manager, strata manager, or who, you know, every day is a new opportunity to succeed. So use tools, and if they're not there, acquire them. Indeed. Yeah. It's really that simple, but it can be a complicated task harvesting all that documentation, and it can be quite voluminous, can't it? Indeed, and knowing where to find it is another um, nightmare as well. Mm. So um, do you find in your work you've got to delve deep into um, the documentation, see what's there, what's missing, what's up to date, what needs to be updated? Um, It's a big task. Um, 
you do this in your work, how do you find um, meeting those challenges? Well, it, it is. It's extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. Tenacity is the absolute utmost um, skill that you need to have, and um, and and just perseverance. But you obviously need to know where to start. Mm-hmm. Where do I start? What what do I need? The first step is the asset register. Yeah. Once you understand the assets within the building, it then rolls from there. So we ha- we now have um, fire extinguishers. Well, it follows that you need to have testing records, yeah. occupier's statement, yearly condition reports, etc. Mm. So once we know what assets we've got, then we can follow from there. That's the first step. Yeah. So do you find going onto the scheme and actually doing a physical inspection is the first step, perhaps? Yeah. Well, you can actually... One of them. Yes, definitely. Mm. Very important. Mm. If, you, if we're looking at a brand new development... Mm we can capture those assets off the plan. Mm-hmm. Well, any development that has as-constructed documentation yeah. gives us that information. Mm-hmm. But going to site is um, just gives another layer of information about accessibility, mm-hmm. mobilisation, work health and safety issues, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you can harvest the asset register off the plan. Mm-hmm. Would be great if the developer would set up the asset mm-hmm. register for the just... Little hint, hint to the developers <laughs> out there, and then that could form part of the um, as constructed package. The operations manuals handed over mm. at the first general meeting of the scheme. That yeah. that would be very helpful. And what I find in practice um, when I when I look at new developments is that, in fact, it's the body corporate manager that's charged with the duty of setting up all the roles and registers, and basically the developer delegates that duty or passes that duty on to the the body corporate manager who's establishing the body corporate. But the developer's got an obligation too uh, to hand over these critical documents Indeed. at the first AGM. And typically that will happen a little bit before if they've had a first EGM prior. But there's an obligation, isn't there, under the legislation? There is. Um, section 77... In the, the accommodation module, accommodation module and 78, 79, 79, 79 yeah. you'd yeah. know better than me. <laughs> but they're critical, aren't they? To 100%. The, yeah. 100%. In fact, I it, it breaks my heart, mm. to be honest, that one of my businesses conducts defective building work inspections mm. on behalf of Bodies Corporate for brand new buildings. And I, it just breaks my heart when a mm. committee come to me, the building is five years old. This happened just recently. Mm five-year-old building it's a townhouse complex in the suburbs um, a large number of um, villas and the paint has failed mm. on the um, exterior of the building the QBCC standards and tolerances guide will tell you that paint is non-structural mm. and is, has a 12-month defect liability mm-hmm. period however Dulux or Torbman's or another paint mm. supplier may give you a 10-year warranty yeah. on paint and a quality applicator will also give you an extended mm. warranty. So I asked this um, body corporate manager if I could review the building contract and suite of as-constructed documentation that should have been handed over mm. at the first general meeting of the scheme. She looked at me blankly, like, what well, What are you talking about? Mm. So I had to reference the legislation. And um, 
she had no idea about that. So we went, we set about trying to capture this documentation, but we're five years down mm. the track. Um, I do have links with certain suppliers and was able to get some favours, but this is what frustrates me, is if we had that warranty documentation, the mm. building contract, yeah. the, the as-constructed documentation it would have been very easy for that body corporate to manage their warranty claims and they would have had success. If I had a dollar for every story that I had about an unsuccessful warranty claim under the builder's statutory warranty, Mm -hmm. I'd be retired and living in (laughs) the Bahamas now. So really that's a key um, uh, action to take for new schemes. And it's important because it creates the ongoing uh, duties and responsibilities and obligations of the body corporate. For example, like building washdowns to maintain those warranties and and ensure the longevity of that paint. And well, that washdown, sorry to interrupt, but the mm. washdown point is very important. Mm. It, I, um, I highly recommend, can I mention product names, is it? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I highly recommend Dulux. Mm. Dulux is an Australian um, paint manufacturer. They've been around for 100 years, so you can guarantee they're going to be here in 10 years' time when you're making a claim on their warranty. And Dulux, um, in order um, it, for me to be a project manager of a painting project, I need to have the specification from Dulux up front. Mm. Then I need to incorporate that spec into my um, tender documents. The offers need to reference the Dulux specification in their offers. It needs to be referenced in the contract. We need to draft Mm. a QBCC contract. When the paint is being applied, we need Dulux to do random inspections on surface preparation, Mm. coating thicknesses and all those other things so that Dulux can be certain that their warranty is uh, the conditions of the warranty are being applied. At the end of the job, the applicator and the supplier have to give a certificate of warranty for their part in in the process. In addition to that, the paint supplier must provide a maintenance manual to the body corporate. Mm. That maintenance manual will outline the ongoing care of Mm. the painted surfaces, which has to be upheld, and we need an audit trail of vigilance there. So if we want to make a warranty claim, at any time during the 10-year warranty period, we need to prove that we did it, all of those things. So where um, painting projects come undone in our sector is we don't have um, project managers managing them so that the warranty can be claimed. We don't have um, applicators providing extended warranties that match the paint manufacturer's warranties. Then we don't have strata managers harvesting the warranties and preserving them on the reserved issues register or some other format within the scheme. We have chopping and changing of committees. That's a big issue, isn't it? Indeed. The the corporate knowledge of the body corporate rests with the committee of the day. And when that changes, you lose that continuity of, of where things are going. And this is what I'm trying to say, is that... Every building, every 10 years or so, will be repainted. It's a major outlay for everybody corporate. There's 50,000 schemes currently in Queensland. 5,000 of them are getting painted this year. 
how many of them will be able to make a warranty claim in two years' time? Exactly. And and you bring about a, a good point about the body corporate manager holding that information. But they change too sometimes, Indeed. don't they? So it's about good record keeping. And I like to to talk about using the reserved issues register mm. or the restricted issues register some mechanism that survives individuals year after year, Mm -hmm. somewhere where we can harvest these enduring warranties, have them on a register that's read out at every AGM. So Mm -hmm. we know, oh, we've got a 10-year paint warranty here, people. We're at year three or year five. We know if there's a paint issue, don't go out. We need to go back to the warranty and, and claim mm. under our warranty. It's almost like um, the legislation needs to come up with a warranties and infrastructure register requirement. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. you like that one. It's good. I think this is something that's missing and would uh, alleviate the requirement to solve these problems down the track if there's good governance and proper management of the common property and I, I guess one of the one of the big things is to actually know that you've got to do that especially from registration of the scheme exactly. if the um, warranties and infrastructure yeah. register is established at the first general mm, meeting absolutely. the developer would then supply the information about the assets and the enduring warranties yeah. under the construction yeah, yeah. warranty because you know the builder has the statutory warranty but underneath that is all the subcontractor warranties. Mm. The builders, um, we don't know what they are, We mm. don't, but we want to capture those. That's why I'm so passionate about the building contract mm. and the ASCONs at the first general meeting because that we can glean the warranties from that. But if we could go another step mm. and have the developer list those warranties... On a register, mm. how fantastic would that be? It would make life easier. Um, and not just list them, but have a requirement to provide that supporting the documentation. The ops, the maintenance yeah. manuals, and then the claim forms. How mm. do I actually make a claim under yeah. this warranty? And, of course, the um, depending on the nature of the claim and the nature of the problem, You've got your different jurisdictions to complain to. Mm-hmm. Is it the QBCC? Is mm-hmm. it the Commissioner's Office? The Electrical uh, Safety Office. CSO? Is it um, uh, you know civil matter mm-hmm. uh, that that you need to bring about? It can be complicated, and you've you've brought a good point about the fact that committees are often lay people, mm-hmm. um, and body corporate managers often have a great body of knowledge, but perhaps that kind of thing's not on their radar. Indeed. So uh, consultants are important, aren't they? Absolutely. I keep repeating, know your limitations. Mm. Get a good team around you. There's a a lot of um, committees are concerned that they're outlaying extra expenses for project managers or consultants Mm. or, you know, those that would advise them on specialty areas. Mm. But my view is it's money well spent. Mm. It's an investment. It, know your limitations. You know, scoping up remedial works, for example, is highly specialised. Mm. In fact, under the QBCC licensing rules, 
you cannot do building work in terms of scoping up building work if the project is more than $3,300. It needs to be a project manager or a builder to do that work for you. So know your limitations and don't be afraid to reach out for a specialist to support you. It's not as expensive as you think. I, I relayed the process of project managing a painting project you know, it might be 5% of, of the cost of the job for a project manager, but look what you could save. You get a, a proper warranty at, mm-hmm. or a successful warranty claim if your project manager sets that up for you properly. Yeah, and the project manager will also manage the ongoing project to its completion. Indeed. And make sure the contractor is doing what they're supposed to be doing. substantiates his work. Make sure that it's done properly, all signed off, warranty certificates Mm. in hand, ops manual, maintenance manual delivered. Mm. So it's a false economy to not engage the right consultant to assist the body corporate in these highly technical matters. Indeed, indeed. So, um, again, I'm looking at the ABMA Building Management Code. How does a caretaker manager use this um, you know detailed body of work mm. look that's a good question it's um it's a substantial document mm. there's over a hundred pieces of legislation um, codes of practice Australian standards and um, best practice yeah. um, standards that are imposed on the maintenance of common property so how does one indi- individual person mm. understand all that You'd have to do a law degree and buy a library of, you know, legislation. But the code does simplify those difficult standards and provides clear um, advice. It also suggests who's responsible for what. Is this a body corporate responsibility or is this a duty for the facilities manager or the caretaker? So the building management code is a guidebook. But it really is a tough read in the first instance. Yeah. So. You need to, well, my recommendation is you pop down to a half-day workshop, which is the Strata Professionals Annual Induction Training. Mm-hmm. It's a half-day workshop that introduces um, subscribers to the code to um, the key information within the code and how to apply it in their day-to-day work. So that's a really cost-effective start. Go and do a half-day workshop and, and really learn how to apply the code in your unique circumstance. Mm. And you really need to know it intimately at the end of the day, eventually, Eventually. To be and when you have it on your desk and it's your everyday tool, you usually reach for it when you're in trouble. Yeah. When you've got, um, you know, if the committee are thinking, oh, I'm not sure if this lawn has been mowed properly, well, the committee can go to Chapter 13 on gardening and they can get some measurable guidelines, objective standards objective. that they can measure, you know, is the lawn being mowed properly? Because, you know, we do find that um, individuals have different expectations, especially around cleaning and gardening. I mean, my standard for cleaning the bathroom is very different to my partner's standard of cleaning the bathroom. 
and he may not like the way I mow the lawn. Mm. So we all have different standards. But the building management code is an objective standard, which means it's measurable, justifiable, and most importantly, it cannot be manipulated by either side. So we recommend... So usually the code gets picked up when there's a a difficulty emerging Mm. and one or the other party to the caretaking agreement would look for clarification of a standard. Mm. And it's a good expectations test. It's my expectation on par and in alignment with the objective standard or Mm. is it lower than or higher than? So... Yeah, that's usually when it gets picked up. It's not a book that you read from cover to cover with mm. a cup of tea at night time. It usually is a go-to reference guide when there's um, a tricky question emerging. Mm. You've talked about caretaking agreements, and they can be very generic, and they can also impose a vague standard like a five-star standard, a professional standard, a high standard. All of those terms are very... well lend themselves to subjectivity. It's Um, very interesting that you raise that the as-required high standard, you know, five-star standard. At the end of the day, there's only one level of clean. Clean is clean. Mm -hmm. And the building management code will objectively say that a surface is clean when it's free from removable dirt and stains, uniform in appearance, free from odour, dry, you know, things like Mm. that, which are measurable. Where um, somebody wants a higher standard, that usually comes down to a frequency. So in an agreement, there should be a scope and a frequency and an outcome, and they should all be measurable. So if we had an agreement that said um, mop the lobby floor daily, well, that's measurable. Mop, there's the methodology. Mm. Lobby, there's the scope. Daily, there's the frequency. But if we say clean the common property to a five-star standard, Mm. well, clean, what does that mean? Um, We need to know, is it sweeping, vacuuming and Mm. mopping? Is it vacuuming, mopping and scrubbing? Mm. Because all these Mm. adjectives have connotations in terms of methodologies. As required, five-star standard, what does that mean? If you compare a three-star holiday resort to a five-star holiday resort in the old star ratings, which are redundant, I understand now, the only difference, that the cleaning people still use the same trolley, the same mop, the same vacuum cleaner, the same bucket, the same methodology for for cleaning, whether it's the three-star hotel or the five-star hotel, the only difference is that the five-star hotel wants you to do it more often and they're going to pay you to do it more often. And the five-star hotel is going to give you beautiful surfaces to clean. It's going to give you new carpet more often. It's going to deep cut and polish the marble tiles more often. Whereas the three-star resort is going to extend the life cycle on the carpet it's going to extend the life cycle on the tiles and they're not going to be highly polished or expensive mm. stone. So there's a whole uh, – it's a very interesting question, but mm. clean is clean. There's yeah. no five-star clean. It's a clean. 
Mm. And that's the view that we hold. And that's the only way to look at it objectively, isn't it? Indeed. And a reasonable person would agree with that. Mm. A reasonable person would agree with the objective standards. And as I mentioned earlier, the independent review panel of a number of people have contributed to the writing of the Building Management Code and the debated the language and the standards. Mm. So we can be assured that it, there's been a balanced approach to these objective standards. And for the body corporate to pursue an objective standard is in itself it being reasonable, isn't it? Indeed. Which harps back on the, you know, section 94 of the BCCMA that the body corporate needs to act reasonably in virtually everything that it does. And um, if it applies an objective standard and that resolves a lot of disputes down the track, um, then what you're developing is a collaborative approach to dealing with problems. Which is the only way for genuine compliance. There's three parties that are critical to compliance within the the stakeholder group. That's the building owner, the strata manager and the building manager. Those three entities or individuals must collaborate for 100% compliance. If one of those three are not collaborating or um, working together with a view to the best outcome for the building, a difficulty will emerge. Mm, So we we need to collaborate. None of us can be compliant without the other party supporting and getting on board with it. And I think it's because those parties play a different role, but interlocking role. Indeed. And they bring to the table unique skills the building manager is not skilled to do strata management administration. The strata manager is not skilled to do building management administration. Well, sometimes they are, but not always. Mm. And the committee, they have another skill set that they bring to the table. So we all need to bring our skills and our, um, you know, our energy and enthusiasm and our professionalism to the table. So it seems to me that... Um given this triangle of of parties that must work together, all three different entities must know the objective standards that have to go along with the works that really impact on their building. Indeed. And in the absence of anything else, we now have the ABMA Building Management Code. Mm. I mean, as I said, I come from the construction industry, There's always been the National Construction Code, the Building Code of Australia. As a licensee with the QBCC, I'm regulated under that. The QBCC makes sure that the building work that I have done in the past, I don't do any more now, but the building work I did in the past was up to the standard. If my client disputed that my building work was to the correct standard, they complained to the regulator and the regulator applied the standard in inspecting my work. But all roads go back to the Building Code of Australia, and mm. we were missing that in the building management industry. But now we have the Building Management Code, which we can apply objectively in the same way. Mm. So what are some best practices in the body corporate engaging contractors? Because 
Those engagements are critical. If you choose the wrong contractor who doesn't have the necessary documentation or skill or best practices in their own work, that can have a detrimental effect down the track. So what, what are some best practices for the body corporate to uh, curate their best contractors to do the works that needs to do to meet its own responsibilities? Mm, it's, this is just fundamental. This is as fundamental as harvesting levies um, and having insurance. Mm. You, to make decisions about repairs and maintenance of capital infrastructure is huge. And I heart back to know your limitations. If you don't have a qualified building industry professional on the committee, you need to outsource one. If you are looking to do a scope of works on a capital works project, you need to get help from somebody else. Your building manager um, should have his or her head fully around the assets contained within the scheme and the routine preventative maintenance obligations imposed by Australian standards. They should already know that and they should already be able to scope up service contracts for those works. Where the vulnerability lies is outside the routine maintenance where we need um, a repairs, there's been a breakdown or a failure um, or even rust presenting on metal elements or efflorescent staining on masonry products um, leaking planter boxes, leaking roofs Um, these should not be left to an unskilled person to scope up. These are structural issues. These need a qualified person I'm not saying that you need an engineer or an architect, but you definitely need a builder who holds the same class of licence that your building was built under. You cannot get a builder with a low-rise licence to work on your high-rise building. So you just need to get a building industry professional that has the right um, category of licence to do a scope of works up for you. That one builder might charge $500 or $1,000 to come to your scheme, look at your water leak issue or your failed waterproof membrane or your um, your planter box issues, and he will develop a scope of works for you, and then you can use that in your tendering. But that, in my view, is fundamental. You, You need to know your assets and know your limitations and outsource the right person to I know a number of sensible bodies corporate that are very futuristic in their thinking and they um, collaborate with um, project management firms for decades and they use those firms um, ongoing whenever an issue arises the building manager knows to call that specialist person straight away and get them involved at the planning stage so yeah, if you have a major scheme with complex infrastructure, that would be a best practice recommendation as a partner with, you know, a firm that can provide you enduring services. Yeah. What I see in practice, though, is committee members not appreciating the complexities and skill required to manage a problem like, say, a roof leak or a pipe leak um, infrastructure. 
uh, issue that uh, they will place pressure on the caretaker or the body corporate manager to just resolve the matter. Well, we have a perfect example um, in my um, business last year. We were project managers of a of significant remedial works for a high-rise building on the Esplanade at um, Redcliffe. And that work is now um, completed and the building is being painted. But halfway through our project, the building manager said, oh, we've got some water leaks on the pool podium. Um, could you have a look at them? And and then she elaborated that the body corporate had spent $250,000 six months earlier on having that pool podium re-waterproofed and new tiles. So I said, well, just get the the licensee back to rectify under their warranty. Oh, he's refusing to come back. So we got involved and eventually got the the leaks repaired. However, throughout that process, we identified there was no scope of works done. Um, the person on the committee had interviewed three different contractors and got three different quotes and three different scopes of work. This particular contractor had insisted that the tiles needed to be pulled up in order to fix the leaks. Well, I don't believe that's exactly true. But anyway, that the body corporate just thought, okay, we'll do that. So what could have been a $15,000 fix ended up being a $250,000 fix. Then there was no contract entered into. So there were provisional sum items within the proposal which were not adjusted on, in the contract so the body corporate did not know if they received the provisional sum items or not because there was no scrutiny of that then um, there was no warranty or form 16 on the waterproofing no certification handed over the body corporate was not aware that that they were due any warranties or any certificates so that has all been remedied now because a, a qualified person got involved retrospectively, but that would have been much better managed if the project manager had been engaged at the planning stage mm. instead of um, trying to recover when a um, catastrophic failure had occurred. Yeah, it's it's one of those um, uh, forward planning steps that you really need to take up front. Um, whilst it does cost... You know, an amount up front to pay for expert opinion and ongoing monitoring and advice. It really does prevent that, uh, you know, ugly situation down the track. Indeed, indeed. It costs more mm. for the retrospective chasing under the invisible warranty than it would have been to employ the project manager up front and get it done properly. Mm. So that's for existing schemes. What about um, the do's and don'ts for a new development? Um, what are some best practices there to manage those defects so they don't happen down the track? Indeed, indeed. So repeating myself again, let's get the as-constructed documentation as soon as possible at the beginning of the life of the scheme. This is, um, I would encourage strata managers to write a motion on all of their first general meeting agendas to harvest the building contract, the um, the manuals, the warranties, 
everything to do Mm. with the construction work. So that's step number one. Step number two is as soon as possible we need to do an asset register. What assets do we own? You know, I go to a, I went to a site. A caretaker had been there for eighteen years. She didn't even know there was a car park exhaust system in the basement. It had never been tested, inspected, or serviced or turned on in all of her years of being there. Other building managers don't know they've got sump pumps in their lift wells or, you know, concealed infrastructure that they don't know, or they walk past pieces of plant and equipment every day and not know what it is. So asset register. Once you've done your asset register, you do your preventative maintenance calendar, and that instructs all stakeholders what we have to do every month, every year for the rest of the life of this building. We might have a building for 75 years. This, Those two, three steps, the ASCONS at the AGM, the asset register, and the preventative maintenance calendar will serve that that entire building for the a full life if we've got to get them early. Yeah, and that's the documentation that's passed down from caretaker to caretaker. From strata from manager. Manager to manager. From committee. Committee to committee. Yeah, it yeah. survives individuals mm. and it just needs to be recorded safely somewhere. And I'll leave it up to you, Mark, to mm-hmm. make sure that that infrastructure and warranties <laughs> register gets through on the change to the legislation. And we'll lobby that one. Mm. Now, are there any other areas that affect body corporates um, that involve your stakeholder in areas of practice? Yes, I'd really like to talk a bit about the ABMA Early Dispute Prevention Services. We've talked um, quite a bit about um, challenges um, around the maintenance of common property and understanding what our roles are and um, how that we might pull things together efficiently to do a a good job for posterity. When it comes to um, the caretaking agreement under management rights, we touched on um, areas that give rise to difficulty and one of those areas being vague agreements and not sure um, what the extent of the duty is or the delivery standard under the agreement because it's not prescribed, it's not detailed clearly. So understanding all that, the ABMA a couple of years ago um, put together the Early Dispute Prevention Services Division. This primarily acts as a function to clarify standards. So either party to a caretaking agreement can lodge an application with the ABMA to have a clarification of a standard. We talked earlier about what is um, high a five-star standard or a high-class um, standard or as required. What is a frequency for as required? These are questions that can be answered through the ABMA Early Dispute Prevention Services. It tacks on to the clarification of standard process a mediation opportunity. The mediation is... Um, it's tailored to be an opportunity for but for stakeholders to meet in a safe environment to discuss any difficulties and emerging issues for the benefit of what's best for the building. Mm. So ABMA Early Dispute Prevention Services is um, something that I would like um, the stakeholders and to management rights to be aware of because it's we've had some good success with um, resolving... Um, difficulties between mm. parties, not everything, 
but we yeah. are able to um, um, help disrupt mm. the the negative dynamic that may have emerged. Yeah. We can disrupt it's that. So important to um, to be able to find a way forwards in a dispute resolution situation, and and certainly early interventions critical. Um, I guess in terms of um, um, moving forwards, the ABMA is doing a wonderful job of, uh, you know, maintaining standards and creating standards and pushing high values to its um, stakeholders. And we are absolutely thrilled to have had you on board to give your expertise on um, your area of work and you know, we'd certainly love to have you on board again to discuss other specific areas to deal with. Thank you again. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. For your fortnightly dose of Strata insights, stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals, and to catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the podcast through letstalkstrata.com.au.